census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. This is Robin Dreek, co-author of Sizing People Up, a veteran FBI agent's user manual for behavior prediction, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both keep up with the latest ideas in the quickly changing fields of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, and since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you some time. This show is a labor of love that I do in my spare time. My day job is running a marketing agency where we work with manufacturers and industrial companies to arm their sales teams to take back control of their company's growth. We're not a fit for every company, but if that sounds like you, check out salesartillery.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Robin Dreek to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his newest book, Sizing People Up, a veteran FBI agent's user manual for behavior prediction, published by Portfolio Penguin. After two decades as a behavior analyst with the FBI, Robin Dreek knows a thing or two about sizing people up. He's navigated complex situations that range from handling Russian spies to navigating the internal politics at the Bureau. Through that experience, he was forced to develop a knack for reading people, their intentions, their capabilities, their desires, and their fears. Robin's first book, It's Not All About Me, has become a cult favorite with uh, readers seeking to build quick rapport with others. And his last book, The Code of Trust, was about how to inspire trust in others as a leader. And Robin is the founder and president of People Formula, LLC, an organization that offers advanced rapport building training and consultation. And he routinely conducts workshops and seminars for government, military, and private sector organizations around the country. And Interesting fact, Robin is a graduate of the United States Naval Academy and served five years in the United States Marine Corps. Ooh-ah! Robin, congratulations on sizing people up, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for the best introduction I've ever had, Douglas. <laughs> well, so what you're saying is, uh, to use a, a Marine Corps term, that would be an outstanding introduction. That is a Marine Corps word. It is now. You know, I, I nev- you never realize what words are, are Marine Corps or not until uh, you're starting to use them, and everyone says, "What the heck are you using that for?" <laughs> Roger that. So Roger that. Yes, there you go. There's another one. <laughs> so, part, you know, I'm a military veteran as well. So, pardon me if I suddenly start slipping into this uh, military lingo while interviewing you. Now, I should say though, you are the third Naval Academy graduate on the show, and the first two were John Asher and then Brad McDonald, and they were both submarine commanders who later went on to write books about sales. And I thought, wow, I found my niche. And Brad McDonald said, 
Douglas, I, I think there may only be two of us in the whole world who went to the Naval Academy, were submarine commanders, and then wrote books about sales. But anyway, when you came along, I was, I was very excited. So, and I still haven't had a West Point uh, graduate on the show. So, you know, go Navy, beat Army. I'm sorry. Absolutely, especially this last year. And the only thing that pops in my mind when you say submarine commanders and writing books on sales is like, wow, you really sunk low to get me because you had two guys with big 50-pound brains on your show, and I am not that guy. (laughs) Well, they were both pretty darn humble, Uh, probably not because they were submarine commanders, but because they had very successful careers in sales. And uh, Brad McDonald now works for Sandler Training and uh, the big... uh, organization in Baltimore, and I've had uh, the CEO of Sandler uh, on the show, and as well as some other folks. And uh, yesterday, I went to lunch with Brad McDonald. And so what I'm saying is a Naval Academy grad bought me lunch yesterday. And I'm not saying you need to do that, Robin Drake, but the next time you're down here in Norfolk, you might want to do that. And he with us was his son, who's a Naval Academy graduate serving on active duty. And at lunch, he mentioned that his nephew, also a Naval Academy grad, just got accepted into the FBI training program. Wow, look at that. It's a small, tight world. Matter of fact, you know, my, my son's at the Naval Academy right now as well as a sophomore, oh. as it, we call the youngster. So, so yeah, it, um, and I actually have one of my good friends that was on my drill team with me. She was a phenomenal um, person, and still is, class of 1993, and her son just got in. And I was teaching, mentoring, and guiding them through the you – know, and it's a funny thing. She thinks the, the challenge is over now that he's in. I said, nope, it has just begun because <laughs> you thought you are involved with your kids' lives before. Where do they hit plea beer? <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, it's uh, it seems like a small world I'm in, and I, of course I live in Norfolk, and there's um, there's as many uh, Naval Academy graduates here as there probably are screenwriters in Hollywood. They just seem to be everywhere, and I think you, you even lived here at one point during your I FBI did. career. I did. So uh, I just want to make clear, though, I just want to make sure, y- you are no longer an FBI agent. Is that correct? Correct. I retired in 2018. Okay. So if I mistakenly lie to you, I won't be facing prison time, and I don't need to have an attorney here with me. <laughs> and if I, and see, and here's the here's the funny thing. If you did that, and I and I tried doing that to you, what's going to happen to the relationship? You're not going to like me anymore. <laughs> and so, first and foremost, you're always going for a good, healthy relationship. So, nah, right. <laughs> and we'll we'll talk about that. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I love my lawyer friends. I just don't like giving them money. So, and I may be like a lot of folks, but is it true? that you're the FBI agent who caught Hannibal Lecter? (laughs) Yeah, a little before my time. I watched watched the show, though. It was pretty good. (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay. You know, I watched that movie once. I can't watch it again. We're talking about The Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, a little creepy. It was actually kind of fascinating to me because I saw it a couple years before I came in the FBI, and then I watched it again. I think I watched it again while I was going through New Agent Training. Actually, the the big show that was going on during New Agent Training for me was X-Files, and so we had a good time watching that every week. Oh, cool. Well, I just want to read a quick excerpt from the beginning of the book and get into it. You write, few of the most serious problems in life are as common as not being able to read people and accurately predict what they'll do. It's not because we're all loose cannons, compulsive liars, or have rapidly shifting personalities. It's because most of us hide or disguise the parts of our lives that we don't want others to see, particularly if there's something important at stake, like love, money, or careers, or our reputations. Even good people feel the need to hide things because nobody's perfect and everybody's vulnerable. A high percentage of people break rules and lie when they're desperate for something they want or something they fear. But even people in comfortable situations often shade the truth and cut corners just to get a little further ahead in life. Decent, 
moral people also shade the truth because each of us wants to be loved and sometimes we're afraid that our true selves aren't worthy of it. Millions of people, though, conceal their agendas and hide the whole truth for reasons that are far darker, such as greed, manipulation, power, control, and deception. Sadly, that's very common, especially in difficult environments and situations. It's particularly likely when people rise to positions of power, even if it's a petty form of power. So, Robin, I think most people in the United States remember where they were on September 11th, 2001. Where were you and what happened? I was on the street about five blocks away outside uh, our office building in Manhattan, which was 26 Federal Plaza. Um, the World Trade Center is about five, six blocks southwest of us. And I was literally getting a cup of coffee with a friend of mine. And when the first plane hit, you heard it, and you looked up. And I didn't see the first plane hit. I just saw the impact on the side of the, the north side of the facade of the North Tower. And the first response, you know, my friend and I had, who was, he was also a pilot. And, you know, we're looking around and it was a perfectly blue, beautiful day in sky. And we're like, well, it wasn't weather. You know, you're thinking the guy might have had a heart attack because you couldn't tell how big this plane was because the side of the you know trade center was so large. It literally did look like a small plane. And so I go up to my uh, office where I worked was on the 25th floor of that building, and we had a direct line of sight um, to, to the Trade Center. And so I was there starting to watch the expanding smoke and, and fire on the floors that the plane went in. And we have a fire station across the street from us, and we see people responding. And we're all at the windows watching this. And the first thing that started happening was you started thinking you were seeing debris falling, and then you started realizing that wasn't debris. It was people jumping because you saw the arms of legs flailing and morbidly I, I was t starting to time it because I was worried I wasn't worried worried's a wrong word I was I was I was hoping it was going to get better than worse so I was actually timing the amount of time in between people jumping and I had counted eight people jump when the south tower was hit and the fireball came through and that's when that you know you just like watching a Hollywood movie it was so dramatic and I turned around and everyone had fled you know everyone everyone kind of went into fight or flight some people did crazy things some people did you know heroic things everyone just did their own thing the marines on the floor because there's about eight of us uh, former marines on the floor we we remember the experiences of oklahoma city uh, bombing of the federal building there where FD, fbi office space was hit and what had happened was a lot of safes were open and so you had files flying all over the place so the marines we started taking control of the floor and securing safes and stuff like that so that was my first few moments of 9-11 mm. and then your life with the FBI changed a bit, and tell us how you got ultimately to dealing with Russians and explain what the BAP is. So, up in you know, my entire career was mostly working Russians, you know, recruiting Russian spies. I was a counterintelligence agent uh, my entire career, and then I ran our behavioral analysis program, I was a team member on it. And what the behavioral analysis program is, it's one of the behavioral arms entities inside the FBI. All the other ones, you have the BAUs, Behavioral Analysis Units, and that's what shows like Criminal Minds is based on. Those are the profilers, and they're when you profile someone, it's basically a crime has been committed, and they look at their research, and they look at their analysis, and they create ideal resumes or profiles of people that would do it so they can try to find these people and sift through information and make a good filter for it. Then my side, work in counterintelligence, our behavioral analysis program kind of flips it. We're looking generally at normal social psychology, and we generally know exactly who it is we're trying to engage with, whether we're trying to interview someone or recruit a spy or a double agent operation, all these hooky spooky spy things. So we're using good 
did social psychology and applied you know neuroscience to try to strategize trust in a relationship so we're kind of on the flip healthy side of it when we're trying to engage people so why did it become important to be able to codify the ability to predict people in your line of work you know, as I, I highlight in the book, it was a fascinating time for me because I was extremely into what I was doing. I was aggressive. I wanted to be successful, but I only had, as I came in the Bureau in 1997, and this is 2001, you know, and generally people don't think you know what you're doing unless you have at least 10 years in. <laughs> and I had a I had a couple of really good confidential human sources in the book, you know, the one's name's Leo. And I remember calling him um, because we were not allowed to work anything except terrorism at that point. We all work in the Middle East, you know, so they shifted all of us that were counterintelligence, where everyone in the office is now working Middle Eastern affairs. And, and looking for intelligence, looking for sources of information that can help us because we had no idea what was happening next or what would go on next. And so I remember calling all my Russian sources I had that were helping me against Russians saying, all right, we need, we need people from the Middle East. And, and Leo contacted me and said, I have someone for you. And it wound up being a relative of a uh, of a, of a political leader in a Middle East country. And I can't disclose all that because uh, of security issues. But well, you'd tell me, but then you'd have to kill me. Yeah. Well, no, actually, I'd probably get killed by someone. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and it would it would be inside the bureau. They'd be very angry at me. Okay. Um, <laughs> but what the challenge was, the individual he brought me had potentially really really good access for us to uh, create a back channel of communication. And at the same time, though, you know, so we have. I need to do a quick assessment of this individual. You know, can we can the information be trusted? And the second challenge was, and you mentioned at the beginning. You know, most most politics is dealing with internal politics, and so how do I how do I strategize having my internal management trust me when I only had like four or five years in the FBI? Mm-hmm. And so it was a, a great challenge on both ends uh, to how to start doing that. And there you go. That's where that's where that intensity really took off. So explain. What you mean when you say that the power of prediction is a virtual superpower? Yeah, so what I really wanted to be able to do, you know, as I started really focusing, learning how to focus on other people, the whole purpose is so that you can really create and inspire trust in those healthy relationships. And so the ability to predict what other people are going to reasonably do in a situation helps manage my expectations because a lot of times people roll through life with hope and they hope someone will do something different next time or they'll hope someone will perform a certain way and inevitably people overestimate when they're saying they want to hope and when you overestimate something or someone and and that individual falls short we generally don't like it and we get angry we get resentful we get frustrated and those negative emotions are no good for both you and for them and for the relationship. So the reason why I love being able to reasonably predict what someone's going to be able to do so I can manage my expectations, I can give them and assign them tasks to, that is commensurate with what their skill set is, and I know that they're probably going to be able to perform at the level that I'm expecting. Now, what's really great about this also is if they've happened, they're either going to hit that level or exceed it, and now if they fall short of it, you know, like in those p- times when you hope, well, now I know they fell short because something might be sideways in their lives. They might have a new challenge I wasn't aware of. And so it makes you much more empathetic and makes you think in terms of how can I be a resource for them to overcome whatever challenge they face. And so again, it, it, it's all about fostering great, healthy, strong relationships because as I've realized in my life, it took a long time to get over the self-centered, you know, narcissism of the of the type A hard charger to realize that, you can achieve nothing in life, I don't care whether it's personal or professional, without 
relationships. And so I focus on that first and foremost. And this is one more tool to give you a deeper understanding of others so you can do just that. Yes. And you say in the book, a sad fact of life is that most people lose more to those they love than to everybody else put together. And so, you know, as you're reading it, you're thinking about your spouse or the people you work with or or other uh, family members. And I think just reading your book gave me a really good dose of empathy. In other words, the ability to understand why people are doing the things they do. Speaking of empathy, explain what stempathy is. Yes, empathy. I, I, I had that on a. That came to me on a one of those morning walks where I do a lot of reflecting on on content I'm working on. So it's a combination of two things. So stoicism, to me, I mean, it, it's not a cynical look at on the world like some people define it. It's actually it's very much for me cause and effect. Especially, I, I learned in the FBI to not assess things as right or wrong, just as is, because mm-hmm. everyone has their own context of what is is, and someone's person's right will be another person's wrong. And so it's a very stoic way to look at things as cause and effect of behaviors. And my processes are extremely cause and effect where you can analyze cognitively and not subjectively. But at the same time, because my entire process is focusing on the other person, understanding them at that deep level, which is empathy, I combine the two, and so it's empathy. It's a combination of both stoicism for cause and effect of your actions and behaviors and theirs, as well as empathy, because this process is extremely empathetic. It works. I love it. Maybe that could be another book just about that topic, because I'm a big fan of stoicism and a big fan of Ryan Holiday. You probably are, too. You know, his books like Ego is the Enemy and uh, The Obstacle is the Way, but also Empathy. And they're both, I think, superpowers for marketing and and sales people. They totally are. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Explain the importance of what you call the primacy of self-interest. And I want you to help people understand that that's not a bad thing. No. So, primacy of self-interest is the um, really exotic way of saying that we're all basically acting in our own best interest. <laughs> you know, you, or what as, we think is our own best interest. Abs- and that's that's the key right there. What we think is in our best interest in terms of safety, security, and prosperity. So, what I started realizing when I'm focusing on others so deeply to understand them again to inspire trust, I started realizing that wow, I can really predict what you're going to do. You're always going to act in what you think is your best interest in terms of safety, security, and prosperity. We're genetically and biologically hardwired to do just that. And if all I need to do is figure out what you think is in your best interest, I don't know what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, 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 fo- it forces you to really focus on that other person in that, in that way. But it seems like it's a subtle difference that the book helped me understand, which is I think a lot of people get caught up in – knowing what's in the best interest of, let's say, that prospect you're selling to or those customers, but it's different. It's what they think is in their self-interest. That seems like a big difference. It's a huge difference. That's why anytime I was given an assignment or task to do, whether it was to make a cold call, which a lot of people have to do in business, you know, I had to do cold calls too. It's like, hey, you need to go interview this person. You have to go talk to this business or you're trying to elicit information from someone or you're trying to get someone on board with you. And that's either HR recruiting or in my line of work is recruit a spy. The first question I ask myself is, so why should they want to talk to me? Not why, not why I think I should convince them because, I mean, seriously, why would another human being in their line of work, in their profession, from their, from their context, from their demographic, from their age, why would they want to talk to someone from the FBI? But that's such a great 
question for every salesperson who's listening to this right now. Just think about that, and it'll change your uh, golf grip <laughs> just enough right. to help. And, and here's and here's the simple truth behind it, and it, which makes it really simple to think about. And when I've worked with all these companies, the greatest salespeople in the world, there they're just being who they are, and they're the ones that are taking clients out on golf courses. They're sending them birthday cards for their kids. You know, they know how to make it about that other person because they figured out, wow, if I just talk in terms of their priorities of what's important to them. And I offer them resources, which are the things, the products and services that I'm trying to sell in terms of what's important to them in terms of safety, security, and prosperity. They're going to take it. Why wouldn't they? (laughs) Same goes for any kind of marketing content. Absolutely. For companies that just love to talk about themselves. Okay, last. Oh, I think I hear a siren outside. That's not the FBI coming for me. Don't worry. (laughs) I'll just tell them I'm talking to you. Last vocabulary word, though, which is very important. What is emotional hijacking? Yeah, emotional hijacking is really simply those moments in life when we react to negative stimulus around us, well, negative from our point of view, and we get angry, frustrated, resentful, all the negative emotions that flush into our brain, and we hit our own fight or flight you know, moments, and we get very tunnel visioned. And what I've noticed is when we get emotionally hijacked, you start focusing very myopically on the thing that, that you're trying to achieve in front of you or just the person in front of you, and we stop the most important thing about it, when we get emotionally hijacked, we stop seeing everyone else around us because everything in life, as I've already mentioned, is based on relationships. Everything you want to achieve, everything you're trying to accomplish is only going to come through other people that it can be a resource for you moving forward in those directions. And when you get emotionally hijacked and you have all those negative emotions flooding in, you disregard all these other – not intentionally, just because you're just focused on this because you're so – you know, myopic and, and intense because your your negative emotions are clouding all these other relationships that are potentially around you that could actually get you to where you're going a lot easier. So as soon as I recognize emotional hijacking in myself, the first person, the first question I ask myself is, how is what I'm going to about to say or do going to help or hinder a healthy relationship? And then I merely step back from the situation. And I then broadcast my priorities and what I'm trying to accomplish to, the, to all the relationships around me and say, hey, folks, I'm trying to get over there. I'm a moron because I can't seem to do it this way. Does anyone else have any ideas? And without fail, the, the, the relationships around me offer all these different suggestions, options, and ways to get there that I never would have thought of in a million years. And all because I let go of frustration, anger, discontentment, or that emotional hijacking. Mm. So before we get into the as many of the different signs, the six signs for behavior prediction. Can you share with us, however, some of the hard truths about predicting behavior? For one thing, it's very challenging um, to predict behavior if you're going to use intuition. Because a lot of times, uh, intuition is very subjective. And I kind of break down intuition into two sides and two camps. Um, the one side, which is the, can be the very um, challenging side, is a, sign, is a side where you use liking. And liking is basically where you have, a, you know, liking someone, which comes down to you share the same morals, ethics, beliefs, background, commonalities, interests. All those things allows us to like someone because we enjoy their company. And a lot of times people will misplace liking someone that for I can trust someone. Mm. But those are two different lanes because trust comes down to what can I reasonably expect you're going to do in all these different situations. You know, I love using the aviation uh, scenario because I'm a I'm a pilot and I have another buddy who's a pilot. But then I have another friend that's a that's not a pilot and he's a great friend of mine. Just because, and I like him very dearly. We're close friends. We share a lot of things together. 
but I can't throw him a set of keys and say, I trust you to fly a plane. You're going to get us killed. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so what happens is, is when you misuse liking and overlap it onto trust, then you're going to have potential issues. Mm -hmm. There's one you talk about called the 50% rule, (laughs) which is the most common forms of predicting behavior are wrong approximately half the time. What, what, like not having data points or behavior science. Yeah, and because a lot of people are using, again, that subjective art form of liking someone, they're superimposing mm-hmm. it on that. And also the other half of it is uh, looking at nonverbal behavior and thinking because I can you know, assess people's nonverbal behavior, you know, I can reasonably predict what they're going to do. But even the best people in the world are 50% accurate on looking at nonverbal behavior alone to assess what someone's going to do. So those are the two challenging areas where people start getting wrapped up in in subjective observations without really concrete, you know, cognitive thought process with it. So, yeah. yeah. And I would think that folks listening would think, oh, that, but that didn't apply to me. Yes, it does. <laughs> we're oh, we're all doing it. Yeah. You know, it's, especially in the workplace, you know, and, and as workplace, friends or families, you know, we have some of us, we can have such very great, strong connections with people. And, and then, then it gets misplaced sometimes. And that's, and th- think about that. We've all had relationships, I think, that might have gone sideways or even got slightly ruined a little bit because, you know, we misplaced liking someone for trusting them. I, I mean, here's a great example just recently with me. I have a very good, matter of fact, the same friend I was talking about um, a few minutes ago. You know, he's a he's an FBI agent still, um, still employed. He's a couple years behind me. And he, when he was a teenager, he was able to get himself a senior in high school. He bought a 92 Camaro. And it's now, the car's now almost 30 years old, and he's looking to get rid of it. And it's because he bought another car, he doesn't have room in the driveway. And meanwhile, my son, who's now a sophomore at the Naval Academy, he's got some money. He wants to buy you know, a muscle car you know, and, and, and have kind of a car he can both drive around and a hobby car he can work on. And so when my friend Steve mentioned this, I was like, you know, I want to get this car for my son. And you know, he's worried that it's going to ruin the relationship because I bought the car, and I've had to put – you know, this old car has taken about, you know, f- between paint job and repairs, it's, it's about an $8,000 car in the end, you know, for a 92 Camaro. And he's stressed out, which is a lot of money for a 30-year-old car. And he was stressed out because, you know, he thought I, I had hope or I thought I had an expectation of, of something. I was like, no. I said, you understand. I said, I understand exactly wh- who you are. I understand exactly your motivations. I can trust you in these areas because you've been transparent on all these things. You know, we have all the six signs of behavior prediction are, are anchored firmly with me. And I have a reasonable expectation of what I can expect from a 30-year-old car. I'm good. There's nothing that could happen to this car that would ruin a relationship because I did this work ahead of time and we have this relationship based on good, healthy trust. Right. So can you give us a high-level overview of the, the six uh, signs for behavior prediction? And then if we have time, we'll, we'll get into a few of them. Sure. Um, the first one is vesting. Vesting is, simply put, is the person that you're engaging and talking to, are they mutually vested in your success as much as their own? Second sign is longevity. Do they see through their words, actions, and deeds? Are they demonstrating that looking for a long relationship with you, or is it just a quick quid pro quo? Next is reliability. This is the person that gives you a resume, and what they can't perform anything on the resume. So this is, you know, do they actually have the ability to do the things they say they can, and do they have the diligence to follow through on it? Actions is the next one, which is number four, and that's um, patterns of positive behaviors, or I like to better say it's past patterns of key behaviors. In other words, if I see you do something once, twice, or three times, the likelihood of you doing it the same way number four and five are pretty high. 
The fifth one is language, and I love language because uh, the anchors where I can demonstrate value and affiliation to another person and make it about them to get their brains to reward them for engaging with me is very simple. I'm seeking their thoughts and opinions. I'm talking in terms of their priorities. I'm validating who they are and their thoughts and opinions without judging them, and I'm giving them choices. So those are the four things I do to demonstrate value and affiliation. So in language, I'm looking for is that person using the same language with me? And then six is stability, and that's emotional stability. So during times of stress, duress, and what we were just talking about with emotional hijacking, can they quickly go back to cognitive thinking, or do they stay off the rails and become unreasonable? Mm. So as it relates to vesting, you say if you can summon enough ego suspension and inner security to view yourself through the eyes of others, it gives you a virtual x-ray vision into them. (laughs) Explain what you mean there. Yeah. So if you, again, vesting is, boy, it takes a lot of, um, like you just mentioned, what I call ego suspension to be able to do that. Because again, we are all trying to act in our own best interest, just very genetically and intuitively. That's what's helped us survive for a zillion years. Because if you didn't, the likelihood of you passing on your genetic coding to others was slim to none when Mm -hmm. you're part of ancient tribes. But the greatest leaders and salespeople and mothers and fathers in the world are the ones that are suspending their own need for self-interest and becoming a resource for the success and prosperity of others without expectation or reciprocity. That's one of my anchors I, I talk about when I'm talking about goals in life. And if one of your goals is to be that kind of person, that's the kind of person that is vested in you. And we've all experienced it, or at least I hope everyone's experienced it at least once. These are the, when you're working for the great boss, that all they're doing is constantly giving you opportunities to grow for training, for advancement. You know, that's someone who's actually vested in your success, even though it's not going to further their own. Uh, and we do this as parents. You know, I, I realized you, you know, a number of years ago that I wasn't put on this earth to do great things. I was put on this earth to be a great resource for the success of my children. And that's what we do as parents, and that's what we do as great leaders. Mm-hmm. And in the book, you, you know, so much of this could be carved in stone, as I like to say, but it's so applicable to the spirit of any kind of marketing content or, or sales efforts a person has. You say, vesting in the success of another person means openly allying with them and actively helping them to succeed based upon the belief that their success will benefit you. So can you talk about some of the positive tests for getting someone to vest in your success? Yeah, things I'm looking for. um, Do they change their work style and tempo to fit yours? Mm -hmm. So think about a new client or, uh, or somebody you're trying to sell to. Absolutely. That So if they're adjusting their tempo and time schedule to fit and accommodate yours, that's exactly what you're talking about there. Mm-hmm. And they talk about your best interests and they're trying to think about things they can do. What would be examples of people that are clearly not keen on vesting in you? Of the not keen on investing in you, you know, they'll do things like um, pass you over for, for promotion. They'll highlight differences that they have in you and your uh, thoughts and opinions on how to move forward on things. You're being left out of uh, key meetings and key engagements with people. They start rumors about you behind your back or whether they're doing it themselves or they'll participate in them. So they're basically under- undermining your ability to be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as I was reading through the book, I <laughs> almost every example you had in there, I thought back to my own work career or even serving in the military. I'm thinking, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. (laughs) Every one of these brought forth a a story of something that applied to me. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, that's right. He's right. That actually happened. (laughs) And, And so here's what's really good about this too, Douglas, is that not only do we recognize it, you know, in others that we're trying to assess, but 
does it not make you a better person? Because now you're also, I reckon when I came up with these, you know, I recognize in myself when I've participated in these negative things. And so I now know what to stop doing if I want to be that person that people trust, that people want to align with, so that people will want to invest in me if I don't do these negative things. So when you would be talking to, let's say, a Russian diplomat that might be thinking about working with you, you then had to show how you were going to help them. Is that right? Or, or they had to then understand how working with you was going to help them. Absolutely. So my, the great rhetorical question I love asking is, so how do you recruit a Russian spy? And I, people think it's money or something like that. And I said, not really necessarily. I said, what are they doing with the money? Actually, it's a, they need money in terms of their safety, security, and prosperity from their point of view. And so in terms of that, one of the things that a lot of them are looking for is one, a priority of theirs is that their children wouldn't grow up under the regime of wherever they were. They're looking for a better opportunity, whether it be education for their children, healthcare for aging parents. And so by sharing the resources I have in terms of the future success of their children, the health of their families, and the prosperity that they could potentially have, those are demonstrations of vesting in their success. Mm-hmm. So they decide that you are going to be able to help them. They want to invest uh, in that relationship. But you have to know how you can how you can help them. Let's go to the next one about longevity. Okay. Now, you mentioned cold calling earlier. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's there's one of the rubs right there. So this has to do with having the other person think that they will have a long relationship with you. Okay, so of all the things that you studied, why is that important? And what can you do to make them think that you will be in a long-term relationship, particularly if they don't see it that way? And it's also if that's what they want or don't want. You know, so, so one thing I, I like to highlight, you know, you don't need all six signs to be able to predict behavior or assess whether you have a healthy relationship. It's just really understanding what the other person is wanting and looking for. Mm-hmm. But but what I always do is making sure that I'm offering these six things to the best of my ability. And so, you know, as I know a lot of, especially in uh, the world of finance, you know, when financial investors, they're, they're courting, you know, potential investors. And so that takes time sometimes, you know, to, you, you're taking them out for coffee, you're taking them out to dinner when you're in town, you're trying to understand their, their priorities. And it takes time sometimes for people to open up and share priorities. And likewise, it takes time for the person to trust the other person. So in doing so, what you're demonstrating is, is a, a sense of longevity because you're, you're talking in, in terms of their long-term goals. You're talking in terms of what you can provide in the long term. You're setting up rituals and standards that you can keep repeating over a period of time. But then, you know, but some people, you know, they're not going to look for that. They're looking for a quick quid pro quo. You know, say you're buying carpet from someone who just knocks on your front door. That's not looking for someone who's a long-term, you know, relationship potentially, although possibly, you know, so you just have to understand what the other person is looking for and understand how to offer the opportunity to have a longer relationship if they want. Right, right, because they know they might not be thinking about that. Right, absolutely. So, what are some of the ways that you can accelerate the tempo of a new relationship? Because it seems like that line of work you were in, <laughs> there were some right. things where you kind of had to speed things up. And literally, I did a couple of these things on one of the, these recruitment ops I was doing. So let me tell you about the what I call the accelerators first. And, and the, I I'm always give my cautionary tale of um, the accelerators because just because you want a relationship to accelerate trust doesn't mean the other person is ready for it to accelerate. Mm-hmm. So you have to keep watching the nonverbal tells of stress. Right. 
And that applies to a lot of the single guys listening to this show uh, who've been dating. Uh, please go ahead. And so here's some potential accelerators you can use. And I give full credit to a good friend of mine, Jack Schaefer, who is on my team with me. And he wrote the book, The Like Switch. And he came up with these accelerators years and years ago. And we used them a lot. And the first one is proximity. So when you're communicating with someone, are you texting them? Are you messaging them? Are you emailing them? Or are you talking on the telephone or meeting in person? You know, the, the closer the proximity, the more, the higher tempo of the p- potential of developing trust in a relationship is. And so that's one accelerator. Mm-hmm. The second accelerator is duration of the engagement. You know, are you texting, you know, one or two texts, you know, every every month or so? Or are you talking on the phone weekly? Or are you meeting daily, you know, to accelerate? So you have, um, so that's, you know, the duration of the time that you're doing it as well. Are you meeting for like one hour or are you meeting for six hours? So that's one. Um, and the second one. And the third one is intensity. To me, intensity is are you talking about the weather or are you talking about where your kids are going to go to college or are you talking about healthcare issues that you're having or your family's having? So there's, it's just the depth of the conversation of knowing the other person. That's intensity. And so if you want to speed things up, you, you know, you can reveal things about yourself and be more open if you're comfortable with it for intensity. You can offer to get together more frequently and you can, you know, do it in person via vice doing it over email or cell phone. So again, it's all up to the other person, but those are potential accelerators. Yeah. And one of the 10 negative tells for the perception of longevity in a relationship, I have to share it. You don't know this yet, Robin, but often when I'm reading these books, I'll see something and then I'll tell myself a joke and I'll write it on there. And then I'll leave, actually take a picture of it and share it on LinkedIn. And I'll say jokes I tell myself while reading books. Okay, so I did this on this page. The number one tell is they forget your name, but don't seem to care. Off on the side, I wrote, at least my wife apologizes when she can't remember my name. <laughs> so, you know, it's such a great tool that you do when you do that. Um, I, I don't know if you're, you're probably purposely doing it this way because um, you, you're very well read and understood. But humor is one of the greatest ways to remember things because it's an emotional reaction. When you have an emotional reaction to something, especially a positive one, you tend to remember it. Um, so that's a, such a great memory tool to use. Yeah. Well, let's go to the next one, which I it was one of my favorites. And you talk about... You know, know who to go to. It's like uh, you talk about a big si- a part of sizing people up is determining a, a person's reliability, which has you know a lot to do with two things: competence and diligence. And I also have to add that a colleague of mine here in the office, Pete, recently had a major home renovation, mm-hmm. and I'm so glad he didn't read this because he had a lot of challenges <laughs> with his contractor and you know all the reliability. And I just thought. Pete, before you have any more things done, you got to read this chapter to determine if someone's reliable. Okay, so there's competence and diligence, and I want you to unpack that, as they say. But what's interesting is you say the lack of competence is a deal breaker in most issues of trust, but diligence can be even more insidious because it can catch you off guard. Yeah, absolutely. Because to me, you know, competence is can you actually do what you say you're going to do? In other words, words are one thing, actions are another. 
but just because they have the skills to do something doesn't mean they actually have the uh, <laughs> the emotional or physical fortitude to follow through on it. Mm-hmm. Because I've met some, you know, and I, I think you know, home renovation is a, a great ex- great example of that. People can show you some great examples of their work to demonstrate their competence in something, but they didn't tell you that they told them they're going to get it done in four weeks, and it took them four years. Right. <laughs> so that's going to show you a total lack of diligence. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the things that uh, people could be looking for uh, there that are these tells? Again, this was kind of a painful one to read, this, this chapter, because I've looked past a lot of these in the past, and in hindsight, I shouldn't have. You know, I love this one too. It's one of my favorites because this is actually one of the tells for a, someone who's really self-aware because they don't have – a lot of people that have a lot of insecurities, they're going to say one thing and really not be able to follow through on it because they just want to be liked. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm always looking for is really specific, clear, concise, memorable things they can – site that they're sharing. Uh, they're very, this is one I love. They're transparent about their mistakes and weaknesses. In other words, you know, like when I would inv- interview people to come on my team, I had two specific questions in- interspersed with a few. And the first one was, I'd ask you what your strengths were. What I wanted to hear, I wanted to hear your strengths in terms of my priorities and the team's priorities. I didn't want to, I didn't want a 30 second elevator pitch on something that wasn't relevant. But more importantly, when I asked you what your challenges were, what you were, what you weren't good at, I wanted a lot of transparency about what you sucked at, but then I wanted to hear exactly what your plan is daily to overcome it. Because people aren't looking for perfection. They're looking for transparency because transparency is trustful. Um, so that's what I was looking for there. This is another good one. They're inquisitive. You know, People that have a lot of uh, curiosity about things tend to be much more reliable because they're, if they don't know something today, they're going to figure it out tomorrow. So there's just a few. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, on that page, you talked about how people in interviews looking for jobs have just as many questions as they do answers. My daughter's a senior in college. Guess who took a picture of that and texted it to her? She's off interviewing, so absolutely. My daughter's doing exactly the same thing, and she literally sent me a text uh, three days ago. She's going for a nursing interview. Um, she's a nurse, you know, about to graduate as a nurse, and uh, she said, "What question should I ask?" And so we put the questions in terms of the other person, and also demonstrating her curiosity in areas that mattered to the other person. Well, congratulations on uh, being a dad whose daughter asks you advice. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's, it's one in one in a hundred times. <laughs> yes, yep. yes, exactly. That's why you grab onto those rare moments and hold tight? Yeah, that's uh, that's my that's my life right now. Okay, actions speak louder than words. Let's talk about actions and, and deal breakers. And you you write that the hardest element to isolate is the sort of awkward intersection between thought and emotion. And you go on to say that the durable product of cognitive thought far more than feelings is the primary predictor of what rational people will do. Explain that. Yeah, so, so this one, again, goes back to staying cognitive and, and not getting emotional during situations. And so there's, there's to me, there's two sides of the action sign. There's a being making sure, one, that it's positive actions, because positive things that people are doing are going to be much better for our brains, our cognitive, thoughtful brains, and the negative ones. And then also it's those patterns of key behaviors. So I, I kind of, you know, I like including both those things when observing actions. Mm-hmm. So, and this is real applicable to the, the sales folks, but also marketing people who are trying to elicit change within their organization. What are discovery questions and explain uh, why they can be so effective 
Yeah, I love discovery questions. Um, Versus like rhetorical questions or, you know, that manipulative people tend to ask. So the best way to give advice and guidance is to not give advice or guidance. The best way to have someone basically be their best selves is to you be a resource for them discovering what's in their best interests. So and here's what I mean. So as soon as you take time to discover the priorities of others, which is their again acting in their own best interests in terms of safety, security, and prosperity, as soon as I discover what that is, and now your objective, now granted discovering that's going to give you that empathy. But then when you actually are objective about looking at the things they're doing in their lives that as you being objective doesn't make sense to what you're seeing, instead of telling them, hey, you need to do this, this, and this, which people then get, you know, they get defensive about, their shields go up. It's better to ask them through a discovery question and say, hey, I understand you shared that you're trying to accomplish this. Help me understand um, how what you're doing here. Is that helping you or hindering you getting to where you're trying to go? And so they can actually cognitively think about it and they say, huh. Maybe that's not. And then you can say, well, you know, did you look at um, the resume of this person over here that did the same thing? Do you think the things that that person's resume might help you or hinder you from achieving that? Or did you think about talking to them? Again, all you're doing is asking questions. I I love using the example of, you know, you don't plant seeds with people by telling them what you think. You plant seeds with people by asking them what they think. And again, by seeking the thoughts and opinions, it goes to that first rule of how do you make a conversation about someone else? You seek the thoughts and opinions of others. Mm. Now, it won't, it's no surprise, and you already mentioned this, the languages. You, know, you, you, you listen for the kinds of words that people are using. And earlier in the book, you talked about how conversations can be one of the most revealing things of determining if someone can be trusted. What, what, what do you do during a conversation, and, and why are people maybe a little more off guard? You know, I think what I was talking about there is, you know, I'm, what I'm looking for in conversation, I'm looking for simplicity, really. Uh, I'm looking for really transparent communication. I'm looking for not overcomplicated themes. I'm not looking for overcomplications of explanations because ultimately a lot of people ask me, so how do you know you can trust someone or how do you know someone's not lying to you? And I said, well, I don't know if they're not lying or not, but what I'm always looking for is transparency because if I have someone who's being transparent with questions I'm asking, that's someone who I can trust because in, I mean, I'm saying in general because you know you have some great you know people that are edging up in psychopathy that don't have empathy are, are pretty good at, at doing just that as well. But in general, <laughs> and you've probably met many of them in your FBI career. But we all have. I mean, uh, you know, people that generally are conquerors of the worlds. You know, a lot of them are edging up in psychopathy. Um, I'm not saying all, and I'm not, you know, but I mean, we've all we've all seen the people that tend to love to railroad over people and uh, <laughs> right. have lack of empathy. Yes. Um, but they generally are the most unhappy people as well because they're not doing anything positive for themselves emotionally. But, you know, getting back to that, you know, I'm looking for that transparency and openness. And that's and so people that tend to overcomplicate things. Yes. It's because most likely there's something that they're unsure of them themselves and they're trying to double talk or they're trying to explain things that they really don't have a concept of. So, yeah, I, I kind of take a step back and I'm just always asking myself if if uh, if I'm having a question raised in my mind where I don't understand something, I'll apologize for being a moron. And, I, and can you f- please explain this to me, you know, in simple terms for my fifth grade brain to understand? And if they have an inability to do that or a lack of desire to do that, it kind of gives me a little bit of pause there to say, huh, maybe they just don't want to have a relationship in this lane. So maybe I'll try to shift over to another one. Yeah, and it brings to mind for me the concept I'm always hearing about, which is it's simple to make things hard, 
but it's hard to make things simple. Yeah, I totally agree. If you're explaining something or doing a presentation, you never seem to get in trouble if you make things really simple. And you have to know what you're talking about, too. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I call all this what I'm talking about here in all my books is the elusive obvious. The elusive obvious in life is really simple. We're all acting in our own best interests, and so we're seeking safety and security and prosperity for ourselves. That's that's it. You know, so how do you be a resource for that with others so I can create a relationship and I can create trust? That's mm. all. All of us are seeking relationships, whether we understand it or not cognitively, but we are all looking for people in our lives. I mean, just you and me. I mean, you did such – you, you know, when we first started chatting, you know, to make sure, you know, that this is going to be a great conversation for your folks. I mean, you formed a great relationship because you sought my thoughts and opinions. You talked in terms of my priorities. So you empowered me with choices, and you validated me, you know, and you and you made – you you were vested in – and as you were so vested in my success, that first sign, and you're open to a long relationship. I so you can keep looking at this even in real time like right now. All the things you do with, with the people you interview and people you chat with, you inspire good, healthy, trust relationships because you make it about them very well. Thank you. And I guess it started a few weeks ago when I started insisting that you get a different headset and a microphone, and you did. Yep. And I didn't realize at that point, because I hadn't read your book yet, I didn't realize uh, you really seem to appreciate that, and now I read your book, and now I, I kind of understand a little bit better uh, why. And, and here's why, because look at I mean, so we I love analyzing things because it's so fun to understand. So why did I have that feeling of oh my god, I love Douglas? He's a great guy. Well, because. One, you made it about me because you want, you know, and even on your video, you, you want me to be successful. And here's what I've learned because you're a professional in this realm. Here's what you learned made people um, successful. It's like, all right, he's got re- he's got credibility. He's reliable. He's a, he's got he's got the the talent. He's got the knowledge, and he's got the diligence to follow through and make things about me. And then when you chatted. You, the thing that really got me, because you know you do interviews all the time and you have to have schedules and, and everything, you said, let's hop on a quick call right now to test it. I was like, oh my gosh, he's willing to invest time right now, right out of his busy schedule, if anyone's busy schedule. That, those are great signs of you know, trustworthiness. Well, thank you. And also, this may not be your last book, so you know, I'm trying to <laughs> develop you like uh, you did with those Russian uh... – <laughs> Russian spies. What Robin's talking about for the listener's benefit, there's a video I have that I made for the guests explaining to them why the audio quality is so important. And at, if anyone's interested, I'll include a link to it in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. But it's basically saying, look, there's a couple simple things you need to do to sound good, because if you don't, you will have less credibility than the host. And <clears throat> I think we all understand why that is not a good thing. <laughs> so... Last one I want to ask about is lack of emotional stability, speaking of me. And you talk about how that is the most important deficit in all of the six signs. You even describe it as the most devastating deficit of all the six six signs. Why is that the real deal breaker? It's almost like it's a paper covers rock. Yeah, because uh, – and we all experience it. This goes back to what um, we talked about earlier about emotional hijacking. And we all have moments when we get emotionally hijacked because as human beings, we react to stimulus around us. And if we perceive that stimulus as negative, we're going to have those emotional hijacking moments, which is fine. But how fast can you come back from it? That's the real key in question because – the great stable people in the world, they face situations and at a, at a certain point you realize, all right, nothing is bad or good. There's just challenges. And so 
I'm looking for with emotional stability is does someone see the things as horrible going off the rails and it's ending my life or the, that of others? Or do they say, huh, that's a new challenge. What, what kind of resources, what kind of relationships can I bring forth to tackle this challenge? So that's the difference between you know someone who is emotionally stable that is now predictable and how they handle situations because I know they're going to lean in and do whatever they need to do to solve whatever the challenge is or dealing with someone who's emotionally unstable that you – because they're constantly reacting differently to different situations and they're not cognitively thinking through things, you have no idea whether they're just going to freeze or whether they're going to do something that's totally inappropriate that's just kind of makes you say, huh, why are you doing that? I mean, there's so, yeah, emotional stability is one I'm looking for a lot. Now, granted, a lot of people need, you know, everyone's on a different path on this and a different learning zone. So I don't, I don't hold any of these signs against anyone because everyone's walking their own path. Yeah. And you talk about how, you know, a lot of people are, Emotionally unstable because of chemicals in their, in, you know, uh, oh, yeah, yep, in their their brain or that, or they had might have had some really terrible trauma in their life. Yeah, and I, I mean, even right now, I'm dealing with, you know, I have friends of mine, retired Navy, retired Marine Corps, and PTSD is starting to kick in with them right now, and mm. we, we've had a few very very sad situations recently, and, and a few glorious ones where we're able to get to someone in time. And again, that is that those those. Those things that happen, the trauma in our lives that we experience, you know, you, you don't know the effect it has internally on people. And the big thing I, I, I've been talking about a lot with people is, you know, having trust and having safe places and having these good, healthy relationships allows us to have people let go of your shame. You know, I, I think that's really so key and critical in life is that to realize that, so I, I talk about the one truth of, you know, we're always acting in our own best interest. Here's another truth. We all have insecurities. You know, we're born, I, I always laugh, I said, we're born perfect, the world messes us up for about 19 years, and we spend the rest of our lives overcoming that. And so everyone is working on their own insecurities, their own, you know, their own shame that they have over, you know, things they've done, the person they think they are. You know, our own self-image tends to be a lot worse than the rest of the world sees it. And if you can just let go of that and reach out when you need help and when you need to resource in someone, that's going to make a huge difference in people's lives. Yeah, yeah, and that chapter eight was <laughs> quite the crescendo. And you say when people realize that they're good enough as they are, they usually see that they're even better than they need to be. One last <laughs> ironic note to perfectionists: don't worry about being perfect. <laughs> worry about being good enough, which does not mean um, just being okay. Robin, there's just one last question I wanted to ask you, which was from that same chapter. You explained that there are really only two basic emotions that are hardwired into the brain. What are they? They're simply love and fear. It all comes down to that? Yeah, it does. Because, you know, love brings forth all the positive emotions, not just through, you know, the social interactions you have, but also through the neuroscience in your brain. Our brain loves when we love because it's all positive. It means that when you're love and being loved, you're part of the tribe, you're affiliated with others, you're being valued by others. And fear brings up all that emotional hijacking again, you know, resentment, frustration, anger, discontentment. It actually, it fogs the brain. You know, it makes a, you know, I talk about the quiet brain and noisy brain. Love creates a very quiet brain. And I, that's why I, I live with the mantra now, I do not let anyone in my life bother me. Because if, if someone's bothering me, it's because I have – they're flaring up some insecurity in me in some way or they're ex- exhibiting a 
an insecurity that I flared up in them in some way. And so I need to dive deep to understand their context, understand them, because it doesn't mean that behavior might go away, but as long as I understand why that behavior is there and what insecurity they have, I gain acceptance, I gain tolerance, and that love starts flowing. So it creates a calm brain, as opposed to all the distrust, fear of loss, fear of change, all that just creates a very noisy brain, and noisy brains don't see the beautiful relationships around them that might be a resource for them. Well said. Well said. So, Robin, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? To understand how to be a value and resource to others, and to do that, you have to understand their priorities in terms of what they view as successful in terms of healthy and security, prosperous lives. As soon as you start understanding that and digging deep to understand that and being a resource, you're going to start forming trust and relationships, and then you're going to be able to start to predict their behavior. And for me, it all goes back to stempathy. I'm telling you, there's a book in that. There's a book uh, there for you. I've actually thought about that. And the one I'm actually tinkering on my mind right now is actually a – because I uh, working with my uh, my co-author Cam, and he was amazed at how I could maintain my calm, cool collectiveness when I'm trying to get this book through the FBI pre-publication review process because it was laborious. And uh, he's like, "Dude, you got to write a book on how to self-manage yourself." <laughs> and empathy's part of that, no doubt. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, don't listen to us. You know, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I should mention that uh, your your co-author is uh, Cameron Stouth. And uh, I forgot to mention him at the, at the top of the uh, interview. Sorry about that, Cameron. So is there one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the many ideas from the book? Sure. Um, I think the first thing anyone can do any day of the week, any moment of the day is seek the greatness in others. In other words, start, start, stop looking for what they're doing wrong. Start looking at what they're doing right because everyone's doing something right. Because if you want to start a meaningful conversation with someone, start out by validating the strength, attribute, or action you've witnessed them taking because that's saying, I see you and I see your greatness. And that's an easy thing we can all start doing. So just try that at work today, folks. It's, and, and it's going to feel good too. Yeah, and you're going to see amazing reactions when you do that. Yes, yes. So what books have inspired your working career? The first, and we talked about it before, the first one that um, when I went through undercover certification school with the FBI back in 2001, I think it was, uh, we had all these great classes and, and you know all these hardcore things we were doing for all this undercover work. And then we had this really senior agent that had been working, you know, gangs, biker gangs and white supremacist stuff and you know, and you're expecting him to come in with all this, you know, scary stories and, and techniques and tools. And he all he did was he came in our class, he held up Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and he just said, you know, you're now at an age and at a level of interaction with human beings that classes are great, but actually this is the world of self education. He said, This is the first book I want you to read. I want you to read it cover to cover. I want you to take notes in the margins. Then I want you to go practice it. And when you practice it, you're going to fail and you're going to succeed. Then you're going to come back. You're going to reflect. You're going to self-analyze, see what you did wrong, see what you did right, reread the chapter, reread the book, then go out and do it again. And so that was the first one that started me on my path. And then um, probably Joe Navarro's book, What Everybody Is Saying. Uh, He was a great teacher, mentor, and guide to me. It's uh, really good on interpersonal communication and dialogue. And he was a FBI agent, right? Yeah, he's one of the founders of my behavioral analysis program and uh, and a world-renowned nonverbal expert and a, a terrific human being that 
just uses his powers of observation to get into further um, relationships. Jack Schaefer's book, The Like Switch, is another good one. Mm. Um, also on my team, a former um, behavioral analysis program guy, his master of language and understanding it is phenomenal. Good friend Chris Hagnagy, uh, he's a social engineer. He's written numerous books on social engineering, uh, which you would think would be in the world of cyber, but it's not. It's actually in the world of understanding what malicious people are trying to do to take advantage of you uh, using these same tools and techniques. And so uh, he's a great defender of people um, that are trying to attack. And he's a great defender of the good guy trying to uh, help you understand what the bad guys are trying to do to you. Um, so then, believe it or not, there's a I talked about this recently because it popped in my brain. I read this great book years ago. It's hard to find. It's called The Interrogator. This book is got by it's about a guy by the name of Hans Scharpf. And Hans was a um, Nazi interrogator during World War II. And he was an interrogator of Allied pilots that went down. And you would think that this is going to be a, a book since he's a Nazi interrogator about thumbscrews and, and horrible things. But Hans was a great great human being. His father taught him to teach every human being with um, with great humanity and compassion, and he was one of the most successful elicitors of information during the war because he treated everyone with such compassion, got them their Red Cross packages, took them for long walks. I mean, he just great made great friends with everyone that um, wound up in uh, the prison camps, and, he, and everyone afterwards, after the war ended, he immigrated to the United States, and all the people that he ever interacted with um, would hold uh, a conference in honor of him every single year to honor him. And they said, I have no idea what Hans ever got from me, but I'll tell you what, he treated me very well. He made a, the dark times bright. Um, so I thought it was a great way to, we all have power to do whatever we can, one person at a time, and even in the darkest situations, and he was one of the guys that did that. Wow, what a story. Uh, if that book is out of print, we'll still try to find an article book. or something about him uh, and include it at your, uh, this episode's show notes. Are there any uh, recent or upcoming books that you've heard of uh, or that you recommend? Yeah, um, my good friend, as a matter of fact, I was just doing a, a chat with him. I was at a conference with him as one of the speakers. Uh, I mentioned already Chris Hagnagy. Uh, he's written numerous books, but he's got one coming out this fall. He thinks it should be out. Um, he's got a working title right now on Hacking Humans, which you think is a, a negative connotation, but it's actually Hacking Humans for Deeper Understanding of What Human Beings Are Seeking and Craving. So it's another angle on the kind of stuff that I do and Joe does and everyone else. But uh, wow. I'm, I'm greatly looking forward to that one. That sounds interesting, and I know a guy who interviews authors on a podcast who, um, <laughs> you know, I'm just love, saying. He would love to chat with you. Okay. So, at, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to your, your websites and your, your social media and your LinkedIn profile so listeners can connect with you, and I hope they'll reach out and thank you for being on the show. Uh, we'll also include links to all of the books and, and even that uh, video that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Sizing People Up, a veteran FBI agent's user manual for behavior prediction. The authors are Robin Dreek and Cameron Stoth. Robin, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. I can't thank you enough as well, Douglas. What a fantastic time I had sharing with you. And that closes the book on episode 274 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for 
whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name, again, is Douglas Burdett. And if you'd like to record a question that could be played and answered on a future episode, please go to marketingbookpodcast.com and record it. And please join us next time as we welcome back David Ocker to talk about his book, Owning Game-Changing Subcategories, Uncommon Growth in the Digital Age. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Jessica Ambrose.